0: While you're being seated, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Book of Matthew, chapter five. This morning, Matthew chapter five. The text this morning—it's um, probably a little too long to read together. Where last time I preached through the Sermon on the Mount. To cover the amount of verses we're going to try and cover this morning took about eight weeks, so um, my goal is not to keep you eight hours this morning, Uh, (laughs) but uh, we do want to um, just kind of give you the highlights of the rest of this passage. As we started this, we said that we were going to kind of condense the Sermon on the Mount a little bit since we did have an extended six-month study through it. Uh, A couple years ago, if you want the more extended studies on this passage, uh, you can certainly ask Mark for those recordings and he will get those to you. But Matthew chapter five, and I want you to just think about some of the positive changes that sometimes you see in your own life, in in the life of maybe some of those you love. Just imagine that a child, uh, for instance, starts being, they stop being sullen and they stop being sulky. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a positive change, right? That's something that you would like to see, but what if it's only because the parent gave in and gave them what they wanted, right? What about, uh, what about the parent who stops harassing their child's teachers, but only because the teacher gave in and lifted their grade more than what they actually earned, right? That never happens, I know, right? Right? <laughs> What about the employee that stops complaining about with all the other employees about their boss, but only because the boss has been moved to a different department? And so are these positive changes as far as they go? Well, maybe so. But the question is, are they adequate changes? Are they adequate changes? Are they changes toward actual righteousness or are they something else? I think that we would all agree that really, in all honesty, that this is not the change, whether it is at work or at school or in parenting or even in discipleship or counseling. I think we would all agree that these are not the kind of changes that we are looking for, right? That that is really just mere conformity. That's all it is. It's just mere conforming to expectations or rules. That's really all that is happening there. And it's really tempting to kind of settle for that, isn't it? It's really tempting that when you see the good outward behavior, you assume that that is enough. When the bad behavior stops and and good behavior comes about, you assume that that is enough. When in reality, all it really is is mere conformity. It's really nothing else. And sadly today, that's what a lot of churches, that's all they're looking for. They'll, they'll get in, you know, pulpit and they'll talk about the latest uh, societal sins or they'll talk about the latest political party scandals or they'll talk about all of this and all of that. And they tell you that you need to conform. And that's really all they're looking for. But beloved, this morning we're going to see that is not all that Jesus is looking for. That is not the only kinds of changes that Jesus is looking for. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. And my prayer, my purpose this morning is that we as Calvary Baptist Church and you as a disciple of Christ will never settle for mere conformity as your righteousness. My prayer and purpose is that you will never settle for mere conformity, not in your children, not at work, not in your own life, not in our church, not in your Sunday school classes. You will never only settle for mere conformity, but you will seek and and look for the righteousness that Christ requires You say, what righteousness is that? You remember back in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, verse four, what did he say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And he says, they shall be satisfied. The problem is, what kind of righteousness is it that the disciple is to hunger and thirst for? And here's the issue. The ones that Jesus was talking to back in their day, the only models that they had before them for righteousness was who? Who? Scribes and Pharisees, that was it. That's all they knew. That's all they had. That's all they had to look at. And what does Jesus say? Remember that profound verse that we looked at at the end of last week, verse 20, what did he say? That unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And you remember a first century Jew would have heard that and they would have said, what? What? I mean, that would have been like in our minds today if we said your righteousness has to be better than Billy Graham, right? Or better than, you know, whoever your favorite preacher is. And so what in the world kind of righteousness can exceed that kind of righteousness that Jesus is looking for? And so what he's gonna do this morning is give us six examples to show us the kind of righteousness that he requires, that God requires, And beloved, in light of the temptation just to settle for mere conformity, I pray this morning we will never be settled. We will never be satisfied with mere conformity, but instead that we will pursue genuine righteousness in our lives. Pursue genuine righteousness. And like I said, there are six examples he gives, but based on the wording, based on how it's kind of arranged in Matthew, Uh, we can see that there are really kind of two foci that he gives. Now, for those of you who don't know, foci is the plural for focus. And uh, I, I put focuses up there and PowerPoint corrected me very quickly. So apparently the right word is foci, okay? I don't know. But anyway, so there it is, all grammatically correct. So there you go. So Christ gives us two foci this morning, and what we're going to see is that those who will pursue genuine righteousness must do so on the two focus that he gives, that we must do so within ourselves, and we must do so toward others. And that's why we see two groups of three here, and we're going to go through them. Obviously, we can only hit the highlights this morning, and so that's what we're going to do. So beginning in verse 21, we see the disciple, you, if you are going to pursue righteousness, you must pursue genuine righteousness within our hearts, within ourselves, within ourselves. A lot of people call this section of the Sermon on the Mount, they call them the six antithesis. And the reason why they call it that is because the structure that he gives over and over and over again, you have heard it said, comma, but I say to you. And so because of the way he says this, a lot of people think that Jesus is overturning the law here, that he's doing away with the law. But beloved, as we saw last week, that's not what he's doing. He says, don't think for a second that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's not overturning the law. And so that's why we got to look very carefully at the wording that he says here. Keep in mind that back during this day, when, when you would come to synagogue, and you would actually, the way it was back then, is that the teacher would sit and the audience would stand. I think we should go back to that. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so what would happen was, is that the scrolls for Torah were way too expensive for the common person to have. And so the only Torah scrolls that were available were locked up in the synagogue, and so the only access they had to it was through the teaching of their religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus is acknowledging that problem. He says, look, you've heard these guys say this, right? You've heard this teaching. Jesus is not overturning the law. What he's doing is he is correcting their false interpretations. He's correcting their false notions of what that law required. Let me just give you an example. And uh, in verse 21, you've heard it said of those who said of old, you shall not murder. Now, is that, a, is that in the Old Testament? Yes, right? But it goes on, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, and what I want you to see here, some people say that what they're softening the command, that, that as you look in the Old Testament, the punishment for murder was that the community were to bring them together and they were to be stoned, and, and that is true. But even in that process, you still had to have witnesses. You still had to have kind of a trial, per se. And so the Pharisees are not really softening the command here because you still have to go through a judgment. But what is it that they are doing? They're making it purely external. In other words, you should not murder. Why? Because you might get caught. That's that's what they're teaching. Don't murder because then you will go to the judgment if you do. Totally external. Why should you not sin? Because you might get caught. My kids have gone through driver's ed. Don't you just love it when they do that because they know all the rules and they now know how many you break when you drive. <laughs> and, um, and all the time they're like, you know, hey, you're not supposed to do that. And I'll say, it's only illegal if you get caught. <laughs> Mom, guess what I learned at church today? No, don't repeat that. But, <laughs> but that's kind of the attitude that the Pharisees are teaching to their people that, that you are not to murder because if you do, you might be judged for it. Not even necessary, but you might face trial. It's completely external. No heart, just mere conformity. Mere fear of punishment. And so what's happening here is not antithesis, but what Jesus is giving are six corrections. That he's bringing the obedience back to the heart. That genuine righteousness does not external, but it, but it wells from inside of us from a renewed heart. That's the righteousness that we need. And so in verses 21 through 26, first of all, we see the heart of murder. What is the heart of murder? Again, Deuteronomy. By the way, the first three, they all come from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5.17 here specifically It's the sixth commandment. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. But in verse 22, here's what Jesus says. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, the very judgment that you fear, guess what? It's already happening if you are angry with your brother. Murder begins in the heart Two kinds of anger, explosive anger, you know, the outward explosive anger, you know, the hot temper. But there's also the the quiet seething anger, you know, the one that just kind of withdraws and they just kind of concentrate it. Kind of like in Genesis 27, 42, when when Rebecca overhears Esau and goes and tells uh, Jacob, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. No, in other words, this is the person who comforts themselves by seething in the anger that they have for someone else. Jesus says, if you're doing either one, you already have the heart of murder in your heart. And he gives two examples here. He says that whoever says, uh, whoever insults his brother, which is, a, uh, which is a word, some of your translations may have the Aramaic there, it's raka, raka, right, in other words, empty head is what that means. Empty headed, good for nothing, insults his brother. In other words, it's, they have nothing to offer. And those who say, you fool, that's really more of an attack on the character of a person. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You're attacking their faith, you're attacking their character. He says here, in other words, there is nothing worth living in this person. In your mind, you have killed their reputation, if only in your head. You ever, you know, you have, you have that person who's mad at you, and because they're mad at you, everything you do, they interpret through the lens of their anger at you. You know, basically, you can't do anything right. They're constantly, you hey, know, hey, 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 hey. You know, everything you do is interpreted through that lens, right? And so what's the correction here that Jesus gives in verse 23? He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, pay attention to the wording there. You remember that your brother has something against you. Now, you say, you mean I have to correct it if someone's angry at me? Well, keep in mind the context here. What's happening? This is the person for whom you have said raka to. This is the person that you have said you fool and now you're here at the church trying to offer your offering, but you have said this to your brother and now your, your brother has a case against you. He says, before you think about worshiping, you need to go be reconciled with your brother. He says, remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly. Oh, beloved, if churches would just do this, there would be so much fewer churches in town because there would be so fewer church splits. If we would just do this. Someone came to me this week, you know I'm, 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 I'm kind of upset. What, did you tell them? No. Why not? Why not? Right? So if you're just gonna seethe in your anger, then there's not a whole lot that God can do for your heart at the moment if you're coming to worship him this morning. And so be reconciled quickly. Humble yourself. Why go to him? Because this is the person that you have insulted this is the person that you have been angry with you need to go and be reconciled and there's biblical steps for how to do that so that's the heart of murder but second of all we see the heart of adultery Deuteronomy 5:18 this is the seventh command you've heard it said of those of old do not commit adultery But I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman, and you could say man in there as well, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, they taught the command was only external. It only matters if once you have actually committed the sin. And Jesus is saying, no, the sin begins in the heart. The sin begins internally. And if you are going to pursue genuine righteousness as a disciple, then you must deal with the sin at the heart level. You must deal with it at the heart level. Once again... Jesus brings it back to the heart. Whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. And again, this is uh, the woman looking at the man as well. Whatever it is, if you look with lustful intent or you read harlequin romances or whatever it is, it's... Hey, the men always get picked on here, so I'm gonna pick on the ladies a little bit, okay? You're not exempt from this, all right? <laughs> and so, but whatever it is, if you're looking at someone other than your spouse with lustful intent, then the heart of adultery is already there. The heart of adultery is already there. Adultery begins in the hearts. So what is the correction here? He says in verse 29, if... And this is pretty radical, look at this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body to be thrown into hell. Same way, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you that you lose one of your members and your whole body to go to hell. Is Jesus being literal here? I don't know that he's being literal, but what he's talking about is what in the counseling world we refer to as radical amputation. In other words, if there is a situation for which the temptation is too great for you, then you need to get yourself out of that situation no matter the cost. Is it the internet, gentlemen? Get rid of the internet. And by the way, not just at home, I'm talking about that little computer you carry in your back pocket as well. Get rid of it if it's a problem for you. If, if it, what What is other issues? Is it, is it the television show you're watching? Is it the streaming channel you subscribe to? Is it, is it the problem that you have at the water cooler at work? It might even be that you need to find another job. It might even be that you need to avoid that particular floor of your workplace. It may be, whatever it is, it may be over the summer, summer's coming up, the pools are about to open up. Gentlemen, if you need to avoid the swimming pools to avoid temptation, do it. Because there is no action that is too radical to avoid sin in your heart. I've actually had a gentleman who had a, an addiction to pornography one time, and he gave me access, online access, to his bank account. I didn't tell him to do this, but he did. And he said, if you see anything that looks like a porn charge on it, you come to me immediately. Because, because I hate this sin more than I value my privacy. Is that too radical? No. No. No, now if I told him to do that, yes, that would be radical, but I did not tell him to do this, beloved. This is what he wanted to do because he hated the sin. And he wanted to do whatever was possible to get rid of it, whatever was necessary. And by the way, he's doing wonderful today. Radical amputation. How willing are you to remove sin and temptations of sin in your life? And along that lines, look what he says in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman on commits adultery. Now, I know we always get a little uneasy when that verse is mentioned in church. But beloved, again, keep this in the context. What's happening here? What is happening He talks about lust, and then he goes into divorce. And back during this day, the primary interpretation of the divorce laws was basically, if for any reason whatsoever you were displeased by your wife, you could simply offer her a no-fault divorce, kind of like today. And what Jesus is saying here is like, look, you cannot use divorce to legitimize your lust. You cannot use legal maneuvering to justify your sinful heart. That's what he's saying. That the piece of paper that separates your wife from your mistress makes it no less of an affair. That the legal judgment that separates that transaction doesn't change a thing. And so Jesus is saying, don't use legal maneuvering to legitimize your sinful heart but instead pursue genuine righteousness, not just mere conformity, not just mere conformity. Beloved, don't don't make the mistake of thinking that the law was all about the external and Jesus is all about the internal. Don't make that mistake. I love what John Calvin says. He says, Moses everywhere Demands the spiritual worship of God. From the very nature of the law, we must conclude that God speaks to the hearts as well as to the hands and the eyes. The whole entire law is speaking to the heart. Beloved, listen, it's not only wrong if you get caught. But that's exactly what the Pharisees were teaching. It's only wrong. And you have to go to the judgment. No, Jesus is saying, no, it's wrong when the very heart began to seek it. It was wrong the moment your heart began fantasizing about it. And so seek genuine righteousness from a renewed heart. Don't settle for mere conformity, not in your own heart, not in the church, not with your kids, not with your grandkids. Don't settle for mere conformity, but shepherd their hearts, engage their hearts to help them understand their need for a savior so that their hearts can be redeemed and they will have true righteousness coming up from within them. That's what we want, amen? We don't want good kids, we want saved kids, We don't want obedient children. We want righteous children, the righteousness that only comes from Jesus Christ. Anything less, we're raising Pharisees. Anything less. And whatever conformity they have does them absolutely no good whatsoever. Not in the eyes of Christ. And so we must pursue genuine righteousness inwardly. But number two, we must pursue genuine righteousness toward others. Now, Jesus is going to shift gears a little bit here, and he's going to kind of walk away from the heart. It's still dealing with the heart, but he's, but he's going to say, okay, we're going to talk about the outward manifestations of the heart. We already kind of mentioned it with the with divorce, but we're going to talk about the outward manifestations of the heart. What happens here, and what does genuine righteousness look like whenever it is moving outward, we're still dealing with genuine heart religion, but beloved, sin doesn't stay in the heart. It eventually will bear fruit, it eventually will show itself, it will eventually be manifest. And so we're still dealing with heart uh, religion, but now we're looking at the fruit and what does this look like? Number one, in verses 33 through 37. We see that there must be a heart of integrity whenever we we work with others, whenever we deal with others. Jesus says in verse 33, he says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Speaking of oaths to the Lord, and, and again, one of the things that the Pharisees did was that whenever they taught, they basically said, you know, the only time that it really matters that you tell the truth is when you're making an oath to God. That the only time that you are really obligated to be, have integrity, the only time that you're really obligated to tell the truth is when you have sworn before God. Any other time, I guess, no big deal. And so Jesus is telling them here, he says, you have heard it said that... Um, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Now, he's moving out of Deuteronomy. This is really getting more into the book of Leviticus. The next three come from Leviticus. And again, if you know anything about the book of Leviticus, it's all about the worship of God. It's all about, uh, it's actually a wonderful worship manual. If you want to understand what worship is supposed to be, read the book of Leviticus because it's all about worship. And all of these texts are all about worship. And, he, and he's talking about, okay, you say that the only time it matters when you tell the truth is when, you, is when you swear an oath to the Lord. In fact, they would even use this as an excuse to not keep their words to others. You know, whenever a, whenever a man wanted to, not take care of his parents. He would just say, oh, my stuff is all given to God, mom and dad, sorry, I, I, can't, I can't help you. Using, twisting this verse in an evil way to relieve themselves of the responsibility of caring for their parents. It's just wicked. And so Jesus says, the correction here in, in verse 34, uh, 35, excuse me. He says, oh, 34, I was right. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, or for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your own head. You can't make one hair white or black. Now, we can do that today. And some of us do. But back in this day, understand that in other words, you really have no control over anything in your life. You really have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And so don't make oaths at all. Now, listen, Jesus is not, and I know some groups say, use this to say, okay, we cannot join the military, we can't sign up for the draft, we can't vote, we can't uh, do other things. We can't say the Pledge of Allegiance. We can't, you know, do stuff like that. I know some groups use this verse that way. I don't really think that's the heart of this text. I really don't. Because in other places, we do see Paul using oath language to the church, okay? We see David taking oaths. We see Paul actually taking oaths. We see um, uh, Abraham and, and, and every, uh, almost every Bible character taking oaths. So I don't think oaths are really the problem here, but beloved, if, if, if the only time someone will really believe what you say is when you have to swear by an oath, that's the problem. That's the problem. And so Jesus says here, he says, don't, don't say oaths at all. Simply let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Because anything more than that comes from a heart of evil. Anything more than that comes from a heart that doesn't have integrity. And so let your words be meaningful. Let your words be meaningful. Don't allow your heart to become deceitful. So we must have a heart of integrity. Also, in verses 38 through 42, we must have a heart of forgiveness. A heart of forgiveness. He says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Someone asked me this morning, I gave an example of Brother Bobby slapping me in the face, and uh, someone said, uh, where are you gonna turn the other cheek also? And I was like, <laughs> as a, actually, we're preaching that text this morning, so I guess we'd have to. The heart of forgiveness. You know, beloved, the, the point of that law, eye for an eye, tooth, of a t- tooth for a tooth, it, it was to restrain It was was to say that, that the punishment must be equal to the crime. In other words, if somebody in Israel stole a sheep, you weren't allowed to kill them. You had to make restitution. The punishment must fit the crime. It must be proportional punishment. That's what that law is all about. And yet what the, what the Pharisees did was that they took that law, they twisted it, and instead of saying this law is meant to restrain, they taught it in a way to say, how far can I go before it's wrong? How far can I go? How far can I take this? Can I take a tooth? Can I take, a, can I, can I take a, an eye? Can I take a whatever before it's wrong? Boy, we hear that all the time, don't we? How far can I go before I sin?" Beloved, if you're asking that question, you've already gone too far. If you're asking that question, how far can I go before it's sin? It's too late. Too late. And so Jesus is saying here, he says, look, don't, Don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Anyone sues you and takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Anyone forces you to go one mile, give him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In other words, don't just begrudgingly walk the required mile, go the second one. Don't just begrudgingly give your tunic, give your cloak as well. In other words, go above and beyond to show kindness to the one who has offended you. Go above and beyond. Because beloved, if we are, all, if we are a people who is all about revenge and getting even, that says to the world that we are just like you. Everyone else, and you know, the quickest way to divide a group is to start insisting on my rights. Quickest way to stir up division is say, "Well, I have a right." Is it true? Sure, sure, it's true. That's the quickest way to divide. Everybody today is fighting over their rights beloved we should lay down our rights and show the love of Jesus show the forgiveness of Jesus and if you have to endure some hurt for that then to God be the glory you don't know what might come from that look what he says he says give to the one excuse me he goes down he says uh <clears throat> that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You are never more like Jesus Christ than, you, than when you show love to those who have hurt you. When you show kindness to those who have hurt you. Genuine kindness. In fact, I've had people ask me before, how can I forgive this person? Show them Kindness. Show them kindness. Even if you have to force yourself to do it at first, show them kindness because before long, the feelings will step in line. Before long, the feelings will follow. Don't be driven by your feelings of anger, but be driven by obedience to the scriptures to show kindness, to have a heart of forgiveness. And then finally, in verses 43 and 47, show a heart of love. Of all, the, of all the ones that they twisted, this one's my favorite. Because look what they did with it. It says, You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Is that in the Bible? Yes, that's that's Leviticus, right? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Is that in the Bible? <laughs> no. No. You know what they've done to this to this to to this text in Leviticus? They've watered it down so much to where the law really was just this: love the ones you love, hate the ones you hate. Well, that's a pretty easy commandment to follow, is it not? I can do that. I mean, if that's the measure of of righteousness, then I'm set, you know. No problems there. he's here, but he says in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Beloved, once again, you will never be more like Christ than when you love your enemies. That's what Jesus did for you. Do you realize before coming to Christ, you were the enemy of God? that you were a child of wrath, that you were a son of the God of this world, that you were a stranger to the commonwealth? Do you realize that you were hostile to God? And how did God respond to you? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for you. He took the enemies of God and he placed them at his own table, dressed in his own righteousness, and he called them my friends. How can we do anything less? How can we do anything less? Beloved, you are never more like Christ than when you show love and compassion to your enemies. That's why he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and unjust. Beloved, you do not have to be a Christian to have a good crop this year. You know why? Because God shows kindness to his enemies. You don't have to be a Christian to have a well-paying job and to take care of your family. Why? Because God, takes, God shows kindness to his enemies. But if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, even the worst people in the world do that. It's nothing special. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Even the Gentiles do the same. It's nothing to that. A heart of love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, who spitefully use you. And beloved, trust me, if you're living for Christ, you're going to be persecuted. You are going to have teasing at work. You're going to have people who are going to treat you wrongly. You're going to be uh, reviled on the news. You're going to be made fun of in the movies. You're going to, all of these things, all of that's going to happen. And if we get mad at the culture, we're really no different than everyone else. I love what Dr., um, Dr. Holland said, Rick Holland, a wonderful friend of mine who's a pastor in Kansas City, one of my profs actually, and he said something at one of my last seminars that was really really great. He said, "Don't ever allow the mission field to become your combat zone. Don't allow the mission field to become the combat zone. But love your enemies." Beloved, we do not fight with the with the warfare of the world. We don't fight with the tools of the enemy. We fight with the word of God and with the love of God and with the spirit of God. And we're not going out to kill anyone. We're going to rescue them and to bring them in. Listen, we have the midterm elections coming up pretty soon, beloved. Listen, don't get so involved fighting the cause that you forget to minister and love the person who's caught in the sin. Do we need to fight the cause? Absolutely. I'm not saying that. But don't get so wrapped up in that that we forget to minister to the ones who are caught in the sin. Because otherwise, we're no different than the world. Listen, what's the point of all this? Jesus said at the very beginning in verse 20, Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, what what in the world can exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? What degree of righteousness do we have? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 48. The point of it all, here it is. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our righteousness must be the very righteousness of God Himself. God Himself. You know, the old uh, evangelism explosion question, you know, if you were to die today and go before the Lord and he says, why should I allow you into my heaven? And you start talking about all the things you've done. Anything you say to that question that is other than the person and work of Jesus Christ, essentially you're saying, why shouldn't I be allowed? God, I'm just as good as you are. Can you imagine saying that to the God of heaven? Why shouldn't I be allowed to come into your house? I'm just like you, rich young ruler. He just, Jesus just said, no one is good but God alone. And then what does a rich young ruler says? Me too. All right? And that's essentially what you're saying to God when you're trusting your own righteousness. Genesis 3, remember the temptation. You will not surely die. He knows that when you eat the fruit, you will be like God. And beloved, when you are settling for mere conformity, you are insulting the righteousness of God. And you are saying, essentially saying, that I'm just as good as God is, and I just need to show it off. When you're trusting in your own self Righteous religion, I'm just like God. All I need to do is show others it is a terrible self-deception. And by the way, the only one you're fooling is yourself. It's the only ones. So beloved, we've seen genuine righteousness. It must be pursued within ourselves. It must be pursued toward others. Church, please do not be satisfied with mere conformity, Please don't settle for external behavior. Genuine righteousness comes from the heart. It comes from a heart that is redeemed. It comes from a heart that is changed. You remember what Jesus said at the woman of the well, that the water that I give will spring up to fountains of living water coming from where? Within you, out of the heart will come fountains of living water. This is what he's talking about. That the very righteousness that he requires is the very righteousness that he places in our hearts. So that from our heart, that righteousness begins to bear fruit toward others. Amen? That's what he's looking for. So beloved, what must we do? How can we pursue that kind of righteousness. Let me just give you a couple of things here. Number one, Proverbs chapter 20, verse five. You know, our heart is desperately deceptive. The proverb says the heart is a deep well of water. It's a deep well. Only a person of understanding can bring it out, can draw it out. How can we draw out our hearts? Beloved, the best way to do that is to ask yourself questions. Ask yourself Questions. Constantly be checking your heart, constantly asking yourself things like, what was I telling myself when I, when I committed the sin? What lie was I convincing myself of? Did I deserve this? That I needed this? What self-justification was I giving myself? And where did that come from? So asking yourself questions. Number two, Proverbs 27, 17, is iron sharpens iron, Seek accountability. Seek a trusted friend. Seek a a loved one. Someone who asks you the hard questions, but they'll do it in compassion and love and patience. From a position of love and understanding. And be that person for someone else. Be that person for someone else. And finally, number three, do you have an area of life that you're struggling in and your heart and it's in deeply and ingrained in the, in the recesses of your heart and you don't know? Find scripture that speak to that and memorize that scripture and meditate on it. Ingrain that scripture in your heart. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Beloved, you're not always gonna have a copy of the scriptures with you when you're in the heat of temptation, but the more scripture you memorize, the more you increase the Holy Spirit's vocabulary in your heart to tackle that sin you're being tempted with. And so work on memorizing scriptures, specifically ones that deal with what you're facing, and then use them when the time comes use them when the time comes. I, uh, my best friend in high school was named Brian. And, uh, he, I met him at church camp. This guy was, uh, and, and this is, you know, he had a, he, he, he just, he, he didn't dress very well. He, uh, he had a mullet, and this was before they were cool, right? I'm not, the, I'm not talking the well-groomed, permed mullets. I'm talking about this was just the guy who didn't want to cut his hair, okay? And, uh, and, you know, all ratty-like and all that, you know? He met, I met him at church camp. If you've ever been to Bog Springs, there's a, there's a bridge right there on the, on the south side of campus, and, uh, and I met him on that bridge. He found out from someone that I was into martial arts and stuff, and first thing this guy ever said to me was, what do you think is the quickest way to kill somebody? You talk about first impressions, that one's never been beat, okay? I'm just, <laughs> um, come to find out he lived in my town. That was great. <laughs> and, uh, and he told his mom when he got home from camp, I met this awesome youth group. And she's like, oh, and so she started sending him to our youth group. Guys, the first time he came to our church, he came with a shirt that advertised illegal drugs. And there were lots of parents. I'm kind of glad he came because it took, you know, all the parents who were complaining about me being there, it kind of took the focus off me and put it on them, you know, and put it on him. And, um, but the youth pastor wisely said, just, just give it time, give it time. Beloved, me and Brian became best friends. We were inseparable in high school. And you know what? After about, Four or five months, he stopped wearing the drug shirts. And I don't mean just a church, he got rid of them. And you know what? About a year later, he actually cut his hair. Not that that's a big deal, but you know, the point is. The point is, beloved, it wasn't external changes. The changes came from a renewed heart. Brian fell in love with Jesus Christ. And that's what changed him. See, if you're here this morning, the whole point of the sermon is not to give you 10 tips on how to avoid these sins. The point of the sermon is to tell you, you are a murderer, you are an adulterer, you are a thief, you are a vengeful, spiteful, you are a hateful person. The righteousness you need is the righteousness that can only be given to you in the glory and in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And the only righteousness that can save your soul is not anything that comes from a sinful heart, but it only comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in him, he gives you a new heart. Christianity is not about having a, turning over a new leaf. It is about having a new life to start with. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, and now we have a heart to pursue genuine righteousness, not mere conformity. Beloved, do not ever be satisfied or settle for mere conformity, but always point to the salvation of Jesus Christ if you're here this morning and you don't have that salvation, I would invite you to come and talk to me about it. Talk to anyone about it. We will share with you how you can know Jesus Christ and how you can have a new heart that'll be redeemed in him. Father, we thank you for these truths. I know as I look over each and every one of these and I look over my past month, I look over this week even, and I see things already in my heart that are there. And I dare say there's probably not anyone in this room who can't do that. Yeah, Father, you have given us forgiveness and your own perfect righteousness. And Lord, as a parent too long, too many times, I've been Satisfied, I've settled for mere conformity. As a, even as a pastor, I have settled for mere conformity in those I disciple, in counseling, in preaching. I pray you'll forgive me. And Lord, may we never be satisfied with nothing less but a renewed life in Jesus Christ. And there's one here this morning who doesn't have that. I pray this morning you are moving on their hearts, convicting them of their need and bringing them to yourself. And if that's you this morning, I wanna talk to you. Let's all stand. I wanna ask you just to bow your heads for a few minutes. I'm gonna ask you to just reflect on on what we've talked about. If you wanna come to this place and you want to pray to the Lord, you want to, uh, to confess things you know that are in your heart, beloved, I would invite you to come. And if you want to talk to someone about knowing Christ, I would invite you. It doesn't have to be me. You can seek out several men, several ladies in this church. Ladies, if you're more comfortable talking with a lady, you can do that. There's not a person in here who will not spend and be spent so that you can know Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. Amen? Amen. Just reflect on what we said this morning as the musicians play. And if you have a need, you come.